Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts his podcast. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl and an MSNBC legal analyst. I'm also the person who wears hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pin is in special honor of our guest today. It is a copy of the U.S. Capitol. And we'll be talking about things that are very relevant to that because we'll talk about January 6th, which should have been a unifying moment for our country, a moment like 9-11 when our country came together as one unit committed to defending our core American ideals and principles. Instead, over one year later, Democrats and most Republicans remain polarized with Republicans continuing the big lie that led to January 6th and still supporting the big liar. Only a small handful of Republicans support doing what is needed to get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th in order to pass legislation to solve those problems. I get a lot of questions on Twitter and other platforms asking me if there is any way we can come together as a nation. What can Congress do about it? How important is accountability? And who should be held accountable and how? We have a great guest with us today to talk about these issues, Congresswoman Madeline Dean from Pennsylvania. Most notably, she served as an impeachment manager during Donald Trump's second impeachment, giving her great insights for our conversation today. Before that, Representative Dean has done everything from being an English professor to a state representative in Pennsylvania. In 2018, after noticing that there were no women serving in Congress from Pennsylvania, she ran for Congress and won. In Congress, Representative Dean sits on the Judiciary and Financial Services Committees. She's also a member of numerous caucuses, including the Bipartisan Addiction and Mental Health Task Force, the New Democrat Coalition, Congressional Progressive Caucus, and more. All right. Thank you so much, Congresswoman Dean, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very glad to have you with us. And I want to get to ask the first question, which is about your service as the House impeachment manager laying out the case for finding Donald Trump guilty of the articles of impeachment for inciting the January 6th insurrection. And I just want to start by saying to me as a citizen and as a prosecutor, the evidence was overwhelmingly presented it made a clear case of culpability and impeachability. And I was appalled because, of course, when the vote is taken, you don't say impeachable or not impeachable. You say guilty or not guilty. And any argument you could make for why it's not impeachable, you can't make for saying not guilty because he was clearly guilty. Um, but so as background for our audience, could you just maybe very briefly summarize the facts that proved that the 45th president of the United States had acted in a way that led to the deadly assault on the Capitol and to almost overturning our democracy? Uh, Jill, uh, really, it is an honor to be with you and for your judgment on that as such a talented and experienced prosecutor, an important part of our historical uh, protection of democracy. So just a fangirl from me <laughs> to you. you to say thank you. Uh, and, and you know what? It, it was an extraordinarily um, solemn honor to be asked by Speaker Pelosi to be one of the impeachment managers under the extraordinary lead of Representative Jamie Raskin. And not to simplify or shortchange, because there's nothing simple about what happened on January the 6th. And it was not a single day's event. 
But I think the easiest thing to say in, in terms of the facts, the article was incitement uh, to insurrection, one article, and uh, but for the behavior and the work and the words of Donald Trump, would we have had an insurrection? No, we would not. And the facts overwhelmingly showed that. Uh, so it was literally the evidence of all the actions and the words finally uh, used uh, at the rally on the ellipse um, on January the 6th, as the president said, uh, we're going to march up to the Capitol. We have to, you know, uh, literally make trouble and I'll be there with you. He incited them. He invited them. Uh, he incited them. And then really damningly, he did nothing to stop it for one uh, 187 minutes as we were trapped uh, in a safe room, uh, as his own vice president was whisked away to safety. 187 minutes did nothing. I can only imagine how terrified you were um, knowing what was happening outside the doors or in the building where you were. And um, I, I wonder when you were presenting the case to the Senate, against Donald Trump, did you see Republicans agreeing with you? I sort of want the inside view, who nonetheless voted to acquit him and who now seem committed to preventing Americans from ever knowing the full extent of what happened. And, and I like that you said not just on January 6th, because there were other attempts at interfering with the peaceful transfer of power, with overturning the real election results. So can you explain, you know, how Republicans, I, I can't believe they didn't see the facts, feel the same terror on January 6th that you felt. What can explain how Trump has this hold on them and why they voted to acquit? I don't think I have a, a good mm. answer for you. Uh, and history will be the judge. Uh, but as we were in uh, the Senate chamber, uh, and it is an awesome place to be uh, with a hundred senators uh, and presented, I thought, the facts uh, as well as we possibly could. Again, I give the credit to Jamie Raskin and a, and a team of folks who knew this was much more about our country and our democracy than anything else. Uh, but we could see uh, some uh, Republican senators paying little attention. Uh, not many, I will admit to you. And by contrast, apparently impeachment won. Some of the managers I've spoken to, there was much greater uh, distraction and disinformation, um, dis not interested. Uh, whereas this one, because of the compelling nature of the video, of the audio, uh, we had their attention with the exception of a rogue few who seemed to go out of their way to show they weren't really interested in what we were saying. Uh, I will say one t at one point when I presented the evidence of the phone call uh, with Secretary of State Raffensperger, where Donald Trump so famously calls and says, I want you to find 11,780 votes, one more than we need. We heard a gasp. I think it was from the Republican side saying, oh, my God, he will be prosecuted for that. Uh, so they certainly heard loudly and clearly what the evidence was. 
and all the behind the scenes that we knew at that time. Now we know much more and yes. the 1-6 committee will get us even more. But what we knew at that time, which was literally about a year ago now, you know, yeah. in the days following insurrection, but we had damning evidence of the continued uh, prolonged effort by Donald Trump starting early on in this presidency to sow disinformation and doubt. And then that drumbeat got louder and louder. And he had participants in his own party, members of the House, uh, his own attorney general, uh, Attorney General Barr, sowing the seeds of doubt about a free and fair election. A lot of people working on his behalf uh, who I think were really just afraid of uh, losing their seats, losing their power because they saw the base uh, grip that Donald Trump has on the base of their what was their party. Still hard for me to understand how people can ignore reality and that he could have this hold. Did you think there was any chance that senators would pay attention to the evidence and would be swayed by it? Because I go back to an era when Democrats and Republicans actually agreed on the facts. I go back to an era where there was a bipartisan vote to um, pass articles of impeachment and when it was Republicans who went to the president to say, if you don't resign, you will be convicted. There is no chance that you will be acquitted. Um, so was there any chance of that in this era? I will tell you, uh, maybe I'm naive, uh, but I think Jamie Raskin and I held out hope. We really did. Uh, and uh, because we knew the facts were overwhelmingly clear, and the very strange affect of this was um, we were not only impeachment managers and the senators there were not only the jury uh, to this trial, they were victims themselves. Yes. We were victims ourselves. We were witnesses ourselves. They were witnesses themselves. So it defies uh, any kind of decency or logic. But maybe uh, we had a forerunner to this when his administration, the former president's administration, started talking about alternative facts. Uh, I think for some uh, Orwellian reasons, uh, Republican senators uh, were hoping to spew alternative facts in the interest of self-preservation, I believe. I will say that after the vote, I, I went back, my argument was complete, and I realized it was time for the vote, so I got myself back into the well of the Senate just to watch, because you know each senator right. stands and says his or her verdict, uh, guilty or not guilty. So I ran in to make sure I could just see every single vote cast. And how do you do that when you know the truth? And I remember specifically Mitch McConnell standing in his place saying, not guilty, and then sitting down. And as we went back to our war room, you know, 150 feet away in the Senate side, uh, we started um, to look. We had TVs on. And there Mitch McConnell stood in that very same place with a fully prepared speech saying the president of the United States was morally responsible for the insurrection, the events of January the 6th. The hypocrisy. To me, that said he had two tapes. One tape he could play for one audience, another tape he could play for a different one. How sad is that? It is very sad. And it's even more surprising in addition to the fact that you 
all and all the senators were victims of the very crime that you were talking about was the American public saw it happen live and was watching the presentation of the evidence. And no one could watch that and not say guilty. The problem is that their voters were watching Fox News, which didn't have this story. Uh, but, you know, I've long argued that holding people accountable is essential and that if Nixon had actually been charged with a crime and prosecuted, that maybe this president, this former president, Donald Trump, would have learned a lesson and that maybe he would have not done what he did. And I'm wondering if you think that if Trump being held accountable now, whether it's in Georgia by the DA there, whether it's in New York, whether it's by the feds, or whether it's just by the public hearings of the January 6th committee that we are expecting to happen, will that make a difference to prevent future recurrence of this kind of anti-democratic, and I don't mean party, I mean anti-democracy conduct? I certainly hope so. I, I think the former president should be held accountable uh, wherever it is appropriate, at any level where it is appropriate. We have to beat back on uh, this kind of wrongdoing uh, uh, without any consequence. Uh, we watched it over the course of his campaign, where he was blowing through guardrails of decency, of human respect, whether it was for his opponents or for uh, Gold Star families, uh, you name it. We saw him blow through one norm of decency uh, or appropriate behavior after another. Uh, it always reminds me of raising children. If you don't clamp down on something that is so absurdly wrong, uh, and you let that go on and on and on, sadly, this is what you get. And so for the sake of our democracy, for the sake of ultimately us knowing the truth, I hope that the former president and those around him who are to, made to account are held accountable to the highest degree of the law. Only then can we reposition ourselves uh, with the norms of democracy and to your, your experience in your era. Yeah. Sadly, now we have to pass new laws. It's like the post-Watergate laws that had to be passed. We have to pass new laws. Uh, I have one bill that's in the larger bill, uh, subpoena compliance. Yes. Uh, you know, strange, large things like that, uh, that this last administration uh, took no interest in and just thought they were above. And you see now the mimicking of that by uh, members of the House. And, and we've had um, Adam Schiff on to talk about the Protect Democracy Act to codify the norms that were so ignored by the last administration. Those are the kind of laws that we need to pass for sure. That's in within that bill. That right. uh, is the uh, subpoena compliance exactly. And you know, it's I do want to say one yeah, thing. Excuse me. And and this is just to lift up something. Uh, that I want to appreciate, which is something that Jamie Raskin often says, which is, remember, we did get a strong majority, strongest majority ever, 57 senators, seven Republicans voted to convict. Uh, so while that didn't meet the constitutional requirement, which I completely respect, uh, unlike uh, we can contrast the filibuster, we did get seven folks who saw in a clear way the responsibility of this president. 
president in inciting an insurrection. That is a very good point yeah. that deserves, deserves mention and emphasis. Thanks. And I, I was just listening to you describe, you know, that it's similar to parenting. I just found it sad that we have to, you know, we have to hold presidents <laughs> accountable like we do children. But um, on that note, um, you know, there have been many scholars that have stressed the importance of accountability, not only because it's consistent with the rule of law, but also because it's crucial to preventing another coup. Um, with that being said, I'd like to maybe dive a little bit deeper into some of your thoughts on the avenues of accountability for Trump. And perhaps first, um, what your thoughts are on are on the work of January 6th, that committee, and um, do you think they've gone far enough? Well, I am so delighted with, uh, first, the impaneling of the 1-6 committee. You saw uh, the different wranglings that went on there when we tried to put in a fully independent commission, uh, and Mr. McCarthy first deputized CATCO to, to negotiate that and then withdrew his support for it. Uh, but we rose above that, and the Speaker seated uh, this group uh, and I'm very proud of the work of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger uh, for holding on to truth, democracy, and the rule of law. Uh, and I happen to know because of my close work with impeachment too, the incredible quality of everybody who is on that committee. And I don't mean just the representatives. I mean the staff behind. And Jill, I know you know what I mean. The extraordinary team of talented lawyers and non-lawyers uh, who are collecting the evidence, who are interviewing witnesses. Uh, so I'm really delighted. But I do hope we do uh, public primetime hearings so the American people can hear for themselves questions asked, answers provided, evidence found. Uh, I think that is going to be critically important uh, for the record, for the historic record. Yeah, I know Jill makes that point a lot that, you know, that was crucial during Watergate and it's going to be crucial now. Um, let's move maybe during, uh, let's move into the Justice Department. Um, you know, Merrick Garland made a significant move in holding members of the Oath Leaders uh, group guilty of seditious conspiracy, yet many remain hesitant about how far he's willing to go in terms of holding uh, the, tot of, the top of the totem pole accountable Donald Trump. Um, do you think he's investigating Trump and, you know, that he shouldn't uh, prosecute Trump ultimately? With the Attorney General, uh, I, obviously, what a breath of fresh air uh, to have an Attorney General who actually upholds the rule of law and the independence of the Department of Justice, uh, contrasted with, sadly, what uh, the former Attorney General Barr did with his uh, audition for the office and then what he did uh, while in office. Um, um, I, I hope and I trust, although obviously I have no inside information as to what the Department of Justice is doing, but I hope and I trust that they are uh, investigating everyone involved up to and including Donald Trump. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, we all want the investigations to run their course no matter how long it takes. But from perhaps a political perspective, how important do you think it is that the facts of January 6th become public before the midterms? Um, and do you think it'll shift votes? I, I hope they become public sooner than later. If you remember, the criteria under the Independent Commission would have been to have a report by the end of last year. Uh, so it would have um, done the work quickly, independently, uh, and also avoided this political season. Uh, having said that, uh, I have full confidence in the 1-6 committee. Uh, they know the deadline, and they know that the American people want this information, regardless of when they vote. 
they want this information. Uh, so I have a confidence we'll get it and, and we'll get it uh, in the upcoming months. Yeah, fingers crossed. And if uh, I'm wondering if Trump announces he's running again, do you think that changes his prosecutability? I don't. I don't think it changes. Again, it, it shouldn't change the facts. It shouldn't change what the investigations, multiple investigations reveal. Uh, I fully expect he will try to run again. Uh, all the more reason why we get our work done. I completely agree with you. And I, I have, since the days of Watergate, said that even a sitting president could and should be indicted when the evidence is sufficient. I mean, we are not a banana republic. We don't want to make a habit of going after the former holder of the presidency. But when the facts are so clear and you can't ignore them, you cannot let someone off the hook. Um, and I, I, I want to turn to a powerful piece you wrote in the Philadelphia Inquirer. It was titled, I had hoped the tragedy of January 6th would bring us together. I was wrong. That was the title. And those of us who followed the events of January 6th uh, remember that many Republicans came out on that day and on TV, on social media, and they denounced the insurrectionists and even President Trump, even then President Trump. But they seem to have retreated back now into denial. And that's why we can't come together is because they're denying that this happened or that it was wrong if it did. And, you know, blaming, oh, it was really the Democrats and Antifa who did this. It wasn't us um, when it's clear that it was. And the January 6th evidence, com the committee's evidence is making that even clearer. But so why do you think people have retreated? Well, Jill, you're a far better lawyer than I. But I remember uh, hearing from, for example, Representative McCarthy or Mitch McConnell. Mm -hmm. Uh, or others who at the time of the insurrection showed the clarity of thought to say the president is responsible. I considered that when you saw how they flipped within yeah. days, uh, whether it was Mr. McCarthy going down to Mar-a-Lago and conferring with the former president, facing impeachment. Um, I compared it to an excited utterance um. that in the moment they excitedly said the truth, just like if you were in a car accident. And, and it was my fault. And I said, oh, my gosh, I didn't see the stop sign. Excited utterance, revealing of the truth. And then they think, oh, gosh, if I say that, I might have some responsibility here. So um, that is my very amateur going back to wow. law school comparison, because I think what they did was they quickly calculated what impact will my truth telling have on me and my next reelection or my bid for Speaker of the House. It was a personal calculation as far as I can tell. It's so true what you are saying. And in this article, you also wrote, and I'm going to quote you, the lies that stormed the Capitol remain a threat to our democracy. And to me, those lies are continuing to this day. At Trump rallies, they're repeated. On right-wing media, they are repeated. The evidence is building of a conspiracy to subvert democracy that exceeds anything that we might have thought in the initial attack on January 6th, that there is a much broader conspiracy that went on. 
And every day the January 6th committee is revealing evidence that shows that the forged elector slates, uh, the pressure on Vice President Pence, uh, show how close we were to losing our democracy. And so is there any way, one, to stop the lies and return to facts? And is there anything that Congress can do, you know, statues they might pass, both to stop the flow of mis misinformation, but also to shore up the gaps in our system of laws that allowed this to possibly happen, you know, turning to the Electoral College Act and other means that might be shored up. Uh, is there some real pressure within Congress to pass those, similar to, as you said, the post-Watergate laws? Well, I really do believe that, that it was lies that fueled the storming of the Capitol. And of course, those lies have not been put to rest in many pockets of our society. And there are media outlets, as you point out, who didn't even really cover the insurrection. Mm -hmm. I have spoken to intelligent voters on the other side of the aisle who have said to me, Matt, aren't you making too much of this January 6th thing? And I say, well, number one, I take it personally for myself because I was there and had to exit in a gas mask. But I take it much more personally for our democracy. And when I asked this person, very smart person, uh, what do you mean? How, how can you watch that newsreel uh, and not see uh, the precious nature of our democracy, the fragility of it, and yet the strength of it too? I don't want to forget that. And do you know what this person said? A smart, sophisticated, accomplished. The person said, I never watched any of that rhetoric. Not news, but rhetoric. So. What do we do to get past that? Expose the truth. A bright light of sunlight on the truth instead of the darkness uh, that really uh, pervades the arguments around not continuing this investigation, not coming forward and speaking, not following a subpoena. The only disinfectant here will be the truth. That's why the public hearings are so important, as would be trials based on presented evidence in a courtroom of crimes. That's why it's necessary. And if I could just add to that the notion of, again, this was not a single day's event. This was a sustained campaign, if not chaotic, but it was a planned, sustained campaign uh, by Donald Trump and others uh, to make sure people did not have confidence in their vote. Imagine wanting to do that to a fellow citizen, to the point where Americans attacked Americans. You heard Jamie Raskin in, in, maybe it was his closing argument, quoting Voltaire, that if you can get people to believe absurdities, you can get them to perform atrocities. History has shown us this. Uh, and so... This was a drumbeat of absurdity after lie, after disinformation. And look what it, it stormed the Capitol using American flags, using the Trump flag to be police officers and to hunt us and down. And the Confederate flag. Uh, we, uh, yes, exactly, exactly. 
So the only avenue is truth. Uh, let's move maybe to voting rights, which is a big topic. You know, you're an ardent champion of voting rights. And as a member of Congress, voted for the combined freedom to vote John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, first, what is your reaction to Senate Democrats unanimously voting for the act and Senate Republicans unanimously voting against the bill and then joining with two Democratic senators to defeat um, a rules change to allow the Democratic majority to vote to pass the act by um, enacting a carve out in the filibuster for voting rights. Oh, what a sad state of events. Um, yeah. I, I have to say, I was sworn in in January of uh, 2019 following the 18 elections uh, and wanted to be, very much wanted to be on the Judiciary Committee uh, and was able to be on that committee. One of the things that was number one on our agenda, in fact, we named it yeah. HR1, was for the people was absolutely to clean up our elections, whether it's the dark money, Citizens United effect, uh, or uh, the voter suppression uh, impacts. Uh, and so I was very excited to be a part of that, which was a long time coming. Uh, John Sarbanes and others had been working on that for a decade, I guess, before we got there. Uh, so we moved to pass HR1. Uh, and of course, I had the chance to serve with John Lewis. I can't tell you. Uh, what good fortune that was in, for my lifetime. Uh, I sometimes, Jill, I would sometimes just, what this was pre-COVID, obviously, <laughs> I would sometimes just go and sit next to him on the floor. There's no assigned seats. So you can sit and chat yeah. with anybody. Because I thought just by talking to him, learning from his experience, maybe by osmosis, I'll become a better person or better legislator. And he was always so generous with his time, always calling me friend. Of course, he called everybody friend. Um, but he but he genuinely meant it. Uh, and so with his passing and I had the chance to go with him to Selma uh, and cross the bridge and twice, two years in a row before his death. Um, uh, we, we, of course, put forward H.R. 4, the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act to get at. We've got a multiple uh, pronged attack on voting rights. We have a Supreme Court in Shelby and then the more recent case who's tearing away at the very fabric of the Voting Rights Act. We have state legislatures, uh, one that I sat in as a Pennsylvania state representative, where voter suppression, voter ID, different things are popular among uh, some state uh, Republican-controlled legislatures. Uh, so uh, for these bills to come in, be combined, uh, I, I, I can't tell you how disappointing it is that, number one, that they should ever have been subject to filibuster, uh, to, to a minority control over our civil rights, our right to vote, that's wrong. Uh, but number two, to not have had the support of Mr. Manchin and Ms. Cinema, I, I don't know how they could possibly have voted with the Republicans against protecting our right to vote. Uh, voting rights bills have come up over the history. They are always bipartisan. Not this year, not post-Trump. Well, uh, maybe the last question against this backdrop, is there anything that Democrats in the administration can do to make sure voting rights are protected? And also, you know, just as an elected official yourself, what are things that you can tell our audience to do to help protect voting rights and get elected officials to understand their concern about democracy? Well, I, I number one, let me take this as an opportunity to th thank both of you for asking me to have this conversation. Uh, and I started by talking about how I'm a, just a proud fan and supporter of Jill. But Victor, I've read a little bit about you. Uh, and so uh, what can we do? 
we can do what you're doing and your generation must do because my generation cares and we're going to do everything in our power to try to hand this democracy off to the next generation uh, for, for my grandchildren and their children. But what you are doing, what you and your whole generation can do is demand the protection of our right to vote, is to run for office yourselves, is to um, work on a campaign if you don't want to run yourself. Work on a campaign that you really believe in, where the person, I don't care the party, but the person shares the values of our common democracy, uh, the precious nature of it. Uh, I will tell you that at 18, I was first asked to run for office. And I credit that couple, it was my girlfriend in high school's parents. They came to visit me one night and said, Mad, we think you should run for office. I was 18. I don't even know if I was registered yet. And I said, yeah, sure. What would I run for? They said, run for committee person. You'll be running in Ward 13. I didn't know what a ward was. Uh, you'll be running against an incumbent. I didn't know what that meant. But because they simply asked me, they opened a door. I found I ran, I rudely took out the incumbent, uh, I served as a committee person, and that planted the seed in me uh, that I have a role to play, whether it's at the very base level or just to educate myself on the issues. So I always am encouraged when I'm with your generation, uh, we're gonna do what we can to steward this as safely as we can for the upcoming years but you guys are going to see us through this. Well, that is perfect advice. And, and I know that parallels with how I felt when I ran to become a delegate in 2020. It was just, I mean, when you're 18, it's like, who am I? And then, and then all of a sudden it happens and you're, but that is the foundation of a lifelong um, passion for civics and, and politics. So um, I totally agree with you. And thank you so much for joining us today, Congresswoman Dean. And your career has been inspirational. Thank you both. You are. So thank you for doing these podcasts. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank we you. hope you'll come back and talk more about your legislation and what its prospects are. I'd love to. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening or watching this episode of iGen Politics with Congresswoman Dean. We hope you found it interesting and enlightening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. So be sure to follow us there on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or wherever you follow your podcasts for another episode next week. And be sure to give us a five-star rating so that other people will find us. That's how it happens. We need to build our listenership and we are counting on you. 